listening to I Quit My Job, a podcast about songwriting, with your hosts, Travis Reitzma and Derek Harrison. I quit my job. I quit my job. I quit my job. I'm free today. Hi, folks. Welcome to the fifth episode of I Quit My Job. I'm Travis Reitzma. Immanuel Kant, the great German idealist philosopher, once called music the quickening art. By this, he meant that music, more than any other art form, has a way of quickening our memory and our senses, of reawaking things long forgotten within our subconscious. Music becomes an instant trigger of nostalgia. It quickens all our senses and transports you back in time to a specific era in your life. Memories both good and bad are instantly evoked the second you hear that piece of music from long ago. My own life is littered with these sorts of musical quickenings. Albums I would spin repeatedly while going through breakups will instantly remind me of the cold pang of heartbreak, like M. Ward's Transistor Radio. Kid A, Radiohead's classic album, instantly takes me back to my first solo apartment in Windsor. The iconic quintet of notes that start off that album will instantly evoke memories of its grayish stained walls and flattened brown carpet that graced its floors. Around eight years ago, while sitting in Windsor's seminal music venue, Fog Lounge, one of these quickening moments was forged. I was having one of those conversations with a new love that would come to define the relationship. We talked for hours in the dimly lit bar room, sipping on pints of Wellington County Dark Ale. Every word served to fasten our resolve to one another. It was one of those dates you think about lovingly if things work out, or with melancholy if they do not. Fogg's owner, Tom Lucher, was working the bar that night, and as Tom is wont to do, he was playing an album on the stereo system from the band that played the night before. As my date and I were engrossed in one another, we started to notice this beautifully dreamy, hauntingly melodic music in the background. Every few minutes, we'd stop our conversation and listen intently to one of the song's hooks. That album was My Life in Rooms, the second official release of Toronto-based singer-songwriter Barzin. The idiosyncrasies of my life's intertwining with Barzin don't end there. A few years later, at another Barzin show at Fog, I met the producer of my first album, Eric Welton, who would later become the bassist in my current band, Diane Motel. The band, Diane Motel, would play its first show at Fog Lounge, opening for Barzin on tour for his latest album. A few weeks ago, Derek and I sat down with Barzin in his Toronto writing studio to talk about his life and his music. He's lived all over the world, London, Ontario, Iran, Ann Arbor, Michigan. He talks about the city he calls home now, Toronto, and how for the first time in his life he really loves the city. He talks about how all his musical work to this point has led him to the creation of his latest album, To Live Alone in That Long Summer and how he's now a bit lost as to what to do next. So here it is, our interview with Barzin. Enjoy. So how many, how many albums do you have out now? God, this is uh, I, my fourth one now. Your fourth one? Yeah. Yeah, and that came out in the, like about a year ago, right? Yeah, last, last uh, March. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah four. Never yeah. thought I'd, I'd make it this far. <laughs> What's the the one? Um, uh, it's I should know this, but the rooms. My life in rooms. My life in rooms. Yeah. Um, I was telling Derek before we were here. Uh, actually, how I was introduced to you was um, I was sitting in Fog Lounge with this girl I was dating at the time, and this girl and I were having this really intense conversation that you have when you're just first meeting someone and you're like really connecting with them. And after about half an hour, we're like, wow, this music is incredible, the music that's playing on the speakers. And so I asked Tom, the owner of Fog, like, who is this? And he said, oh, it's Bars, and he played here last night. And uh, from that point on, like, her and I had this, you know, we 
whenever we would think about that night, it was like, oh yeah, well, look, Parsons Music. Like I bought the album because Tom had some copies right, there, so. and um, and so we would listen. We would listen to the album and sort of think, oh, that was such a great night. Like we really connected, and so like your music played this like really integral role in that relationship, <laughs> oh, which is like, which is kind of cool. But, it's like uh, the soundtrack to. <laughs> yeah and that was before before i knew you too yeah. so and then of course getting to know you and and our band has opened up for you yeah. so that's it's really cool to have that connection yeah that's a nice story i'm glad mm -hmm. to hear that yeah yeah and it's fog where you still usually play when you go down to windsor yes yeah and i i find that actually there's something really special about that so that's why it's nice to hear that story too that it's connected mm -hmm. to the fog mm -hmm. i just have such fond memories every time every time i come to windsor yeah. tom and Frank and everybody, you know, I've met so many great people through there. Mm -hmm. yeah, it mm -hmm. feels like a community, as you guys know. Mm -hmm. Oh, so yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, I think I met my, our bassist in Diane Motel, uh, Eric Welton, at your show. Oh, really? Like years and years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just interesting. Wow, these... You owe me a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I basically owe my life to, uh, <laughs> to your music in some way or another. That's interesting. But, but yeah, it's just weird, these little idiosyncrasies yeah. that yeah. have come up. But... Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. So how, when was the first time you played in Windsor? When was the first time? God. Because you've know, been doing uh, this for, what's oh, 20 years now. Almost, yeah. Mm. I've, I've been, I started uh, when I was first year of university. So I, you know, I can, I couldn't tell you when the first time it was when I was, mm -hmm. I played the fog, but it's, I would say probably eight years ago, yeah. nine years ago. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, that would have been when I, when I first heard that would right. have been right after the first show yeah that makes sense yeah. maybe even more because i remember um the the album that you're talking about came out probably over eight years ago so mm -hmm. that was probably when i came mm -hmm. to, to uh, yeah fog. on the tour yeah. yeah to promote it yeah yeah and have have you been living in toronto all that time i have I have. I, I kind of moved around a little bit, actually. I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, of oh, all places. Oh, yeah. That's a great city. I like that. It is great. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, my my partner at the time, she got a, a scholarship to go there and study. So she was there, and basically I couldn't work uh, because I was a Canadian citizen. Mm. I was not permitted to uh, work there. So for two years, we lived in this house, and all I did was write music. It was such a great luxury to do that yeah, yeah it's like in this college town with artists everywhere yeah, and yeah it's great what a great little city I, I loved it and i got to see you know i was always i was going back to toronto every weekend so i was going through windsor mm -hmm. you know so i i kind of know windsor now a little bit <laughs> yeah from all those drives yeah that's how a lot of people first experiences windsor is just driving through it yeah mm -hmm. to get to the states so driving down here on church basically yeah 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 Beautiful. So, so, were you originally from Toronto? Uh, no, no, no. I I was born in London, Ontario. Okay. And then moved to Iran. Actually, I, oh, started, okay. I lived there until the age of nine, mm -hmm. and then came back to London, Ontario. Then we moved to Toronto. So I've been in Toronto since the age of sixteen. Okay. So okay. your whole adult life is Toronto. Pretty much, yeah. And do you think it's going to stay that way? You know, I've, I've, I've wanted to move away from Toronto. I've tried and I, I, I couldn't do it. You know, my family are, are here and um, I had a really great opportunity once to move to New York. My mm. aunt lives there and she offered me her, she offered for me to go and live with her in Brooklyn and I chickened out. I didn't do it. 
So I feel like if I didn't take that, yeah, not, if I, yeah, I didn't act on it. So I don't know if then I will act on it. No. It'll need to be a pretty big, yes, exactly. <laughs> offer for, to get you out of Toronto, totally. now, right? And you know, I have to say, Toronto. When I was living in Toronto, well, for so long, it, w- it was not the best city. I have to say, I've, I've had a love hate relationship with the city. But in the past five years, I'd say Toronto has become a really great city, and I feel like now I don't mind living here. If we had this conversation five years ago, I probably would say no. Mm-hmm. I would love to get out of the city. But now, oh, yeah. it's great. I feel like it's growing. Um, there's so many great neighborhoods, as you know. As I know. And, yeah. I'm new to town. And, oh, yeah? So it's good to hear that, like, I could have moved here five years ago when I first left Windsor. <laughs> and I didn't. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that that was probably a good good decision yeah. <laughs> to yeah. wait till now. No, it's great. You came yeah. at a good time. It's really good. I think it's just going to get better. There's uh, so many, it's just kind of expanding and um, cool, more and more cool cool places are, mm-hmm. I think, opening neighborhoods, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. growing. And the music scene, has that changed much? You know, I think the music scene is always great in Toronto. I'm, I'm, I've sort of lost touch with the scene for the past year now a little bit. Um, Why is that? Uh, you know, I think it's just a reflection of my own relationship with music a little bit right now. Uh-huh. I'm going through a bit of a funk when it comes to uh, songwriting. You know, hmm. I, I think I've hit a plateau about where I want to go. And uh, so there's been a lull in my own interest wanting to go out and explore. But I know that the music is always out there. And uh, it's not, yeah. you know, it's not that, it, it, yeah, like if I go to any place, any of the night, there'll be some amazing person playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the virtues of living in a very large city, even, you know, even if the music scene is relatively small for the size of that city, it's, you know, 3 million people. So there's going to be musicians around. There's going to be that sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. I think I'm still getting over that whole, the whole fear of missing out thing. Yeah. It's like when I see there's a show going on that I was interested in, but for whatever reason decided not to go, then I like really beat myself up about it a little yeah. bit. And then I have mm-hmm. to remind myself, Know that like every night there's going to be a show that yeah. you should be at, and you can't go to them all. <laughs> it's good though. I mean, it's good that you're still even making the effort to go out there and do it, even though you can't be everywhere all at once. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, also like because I'm new to town as well. I think that's a part of being a musician is, uh, well, it's a networking thing too. Totally. But also learning from the scene and learning. You know, if you don't go to shows, you're just going to be stuck with all the same tricks that you have up your sleeve yeah. without getting any new ones for sure mm-hmm. yeah it's a great great way for uh getting inspired for sure mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so what is it that so you say you've reached a plateau with what you've been doing is it a stylistic thing do you feel like you need to shift i think so you know you know I, you know most of not most but a lot of my friends who started out at the same time that i started out are they're not as excited as uh, about music as, as when as when they started out and it makes sense you know when you've been at it for so long mm-hmm. it's hard to keep interested and excited about it and i feel like i've sort of reached a place where i'm sort of i do want to create but i i i'm tired of creating the same thing mm. especially what i do i've sort of been creating i've created four albums of a very similar style music mm-hmm. so i think i've reached i feel like i've reached the end of this genre or this style of music that I've been pursuing. And I I don't know where to go from here. I'm, I'm kind of maybe thinking about 
thinking about where I can go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe there, maybe with that comes a bit of a fallow time, a, a period of thinking about it. I'm not sure, but right now I'm, uh, I, I think maybe subconsciously things are being worked out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's often the case <laughs> is that your brain is still working through these problems even if you don't know it is. Right. Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm just, uh, what's the, how do I say it? I'm denying the fact that I'm, I just have nowhere to go. And so maybe this is the end. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> that being said, I mean, your most recent album was only last year. It's true. It is very true. Yeah. It's not like you're like, oh, I haven't done anything in a while. <laughs> maybe this is it. It's, like you have, so, like, you have some time, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though. I mean, the, the, the industry or maybe the, the mindset that we live in, I feel that if you're not always putting on new albums or writing, it feels like that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe that's how I feel about mm. it anyways. But mm-hmm. I think, because, uh, you know, people are putting out albums every every year, every two years. Yeah, some people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the culture, I think, of we are li- where we're living. Um, whereas before, I think, people used to take time more yeah. uh, mm-hmm. when it came to albums. But then even before that, you know, in the 60s, it was like every eight months. Yeah, for some bands, for some bands putting, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So it must be like a cultural thing, huh? I'm not sure. I I I, I haven't figured it out. And I, I, I kind of compare it to writing, uh, like uh, authors. Mm-hmm. I like I like the pace that authors take when it can when it comes to putting out work. Uh, maybe it's a little different. You know, maybe it takes more to write a book. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes two, three, four years to write a book. I like that pace much more. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. Well, and the difference, I think, too, the, the perception of the industries. I mean, if you're an author, I know Derek has told me, because Derek and I both write creatively uh, from time to time, and, and uh, you know, you've told me, you know, you're, it's irresponsible, is that your word, to write a book before you're 40? <laughs> um, I don't think I believe that. <laughs> well, but, 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 that's, but it is something that the industry is set up more for, for older older people to kind of you know, find their voice. And it's okay for a 60-year-old to release their first book. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. one, if you're a musician, once you hit that sort of, you know, maybe it's 40, 45, 50 years old. Uh, the industry wants nothing to do with you the industry wants unless you're already successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, you, it, it's a young person's venture. You know, you got to start early. You got to get yeah. your name out there in your 20s so that, you you know, you have the image, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's, it feels like a different thing. Yeah. And do you think that's accurate? Well, I was going to say... Because I'd f- like to hear otherwise for my own <laughs> yeah, mental me health. Too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think we all do as we are aging. I feel like it's shifting. I feel that there is a there there is an older, um, uh, what do you call it? Accept, there's an acceptance for people who, in, who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s uh, uh, to produce work, not necessarily maybe their first album, but... Um, people who are still putting out really great stuff, and it's not—it's not seen as, um, you know, their their work is not seen as irrelevant. You know, there's a lot of great bands like The National is a good example. Mm-hmm. Those guys are pushing probably, like their early forties, maybe I'm guessing, mm-hmm. uh, and they're still producing great stuff. Um, Nick Cave, just, mm-hmm. just oh, yeah. n- name a few bands. Tinder Sticks. Those those bands are still really relevant, doing great stuff. I think Steve Earle, for one, too, I mean, obviously this is a different era, but I think his first 
he was sort of known as a troubadour for a lot of years, but his first album release was, I think, on his 30th birthday or right around his 30th birthday. So that was considered so old at the time to be releasing <laughs> your first album. But one of the reasons he was able to do that at that time was because he had such a reputation uh, as sort of the protege of Towns Van Zandt, for instance. Right, uh, yeah. You know, in his 20s, sort of being a troubadour and playing all these shows, he just didn't have the money or the wherewithal probably to record an album. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. maybe it's maybe it's shifting more toward that. Maybe as as uh, popular music becomes more folk based, which I know is something we've talked about. That suddenly there's this influx of folk music, you know, taking the center stage in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and you know, folk musicians tend to be older. Yeah. So maybe there's a, a shift in that mindset yeah. as well. Yeah, they carries uh, they carry a bit of a an image of the wise mm-hmm. um, uh, messenger. So mm-hmm. you kind of want them to be a little bit older. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Would you think? Uh, would you call your music? Do you think it's based in folk music? Well, I, I grew up listening to folk. My my heroes are folk heroes, yeah. uh, folk artists. Um, but I don't think um, I am a folky in uh, in a sense of um, I don't I don't sing old traditional songs. Um, I don't. Uh, take old traditional songs and try to update them and uh, I guess the whole tradition of protest songs I, I don't participate in that as well so mm-hmm. I, there's not a lot of folk, <laughs> folk elements in my music even though I love the genre yeah um, I I do write on acoustic guitar and uh, I do um, tend to write about personal matters yeah um, which is more like a, I would, I would call that more of a singer songwriter thing. Like mm-hmm. that's the difference. Folk is yes. more of a storytelling medium. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And at least say, in the traditional sense. Yeah, yeah. I think a singer songwriter would be a, a much more of a um, suitable um, title for me than a folk folk artist. But as you were saying, you have like a distinctive sound, and it, and uh, consistent, right across your albums. And how did that? Did you? How did you? create that i think it came with uh with the 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 obsession of for wanting to find a voice as a Mm. as a songwriter i think i'm not sure if about you guys but i feel like a lot of people get obsessed with this need to want to uh find a voice that's theirs which separates separates you from other songwriters Mm -hmm. so it was very it was very deliberate at the beginning I, I tried to. I mean, it was more of a search to um, find a distinctive voice. Um, I think my first album, like a lot of people's first albums, was you know made without really thinking too much about it. But it mm. sets for me the template of what I wanted to work with: the sounds, the yeah. elements, mm-hmm. both in terms of recording and in terms of uh, subject matter and those sort of things. And I sort of some people abandoned those those those. Elements of those templates from the yeah. first album, but I didn't. I've continued to sort of build on it. I haven't really mm-hmm. veered too far right. away from it. That's the thing. Do you think that's been good for your career and for building up an audience? No, uh, no. I mean, yeah, I never really approached it that way at all. And I think that's why it hasn't been very good for that. <laughs> no. But for me, it was always more important to, to, uh, remain to true to a sound to a vision mm-hmm. to an identity and all the other stuff was secondary um, not to say that I ignored it completely but right. I always wanted to be true to the art first and then hopefully 
everything else would come later. So do you feel like if, because you've had, you have this sort of uh, similar sound that you've been building on, do you feel like you've been trying to make a specific album each time and then getting closer and closer to finding that one album you wanted to make? The, The most recent album that I made, which was my fourth album, is the album I feel I was trying to make on my first album. Ah, so that's why you're now so that's feeling why, restless. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. took me 20 years to make it, pretty, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. And what happens with that is that when you spend 20 years trying to craft a certain sound, and when you reach it, it feels like a daunting task to start all over again and recreate your own sound and image and go somewhere else because it's pretty much all you know. Mm. That's what it feels like. It's like starting over. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. I mean, all the tools that you've, all the skills you've developed were all culminated in this previous exactly. album, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you, um, you're you set in your ways, too. There's a lot of habitual um, reflexes in your writing, and so it's hard to get away from yourself to create something new. Mm-hmm. So it's, it makes it hard. Yeah. It's almost like, how do you, you try to forget who you are so you can recreate right. yourself. You try to go mm-hmm. back to when you first yes. discovered how to write songs yeah. and yeah. make music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how was it that you got into it in the first place? With music? Uh, I was, uh, you know, I think in our culture, in, I guess I would say the Canadian culture, it's kind of a rite of passage, I feel like, playing in bands. That mm-hmm. I would say, like, if you're in your teens, everyone sort of, you know, have you have friends who plays guitars or mm-hmm. drums or something. And so I had a lot of friends who were tinkering around on guitars, and I happened to look up to them and so I just picked up guitar to be part of the group yeah and then uh, and guitar was that that was your first instrument guitar was my first instrument until some we needed a drummer and nobody (laughs) wanted to be a drummer so I became the drummer (laughs) fell back on that what's that that's how that's how I started playing the bass (laughs) yeah there you go see that's who I mean who goes to bass who becomes a bass player on their own (laughs) yeah uh, well, we need one. So. Exactly. Drummers and bass players, usually that's how they uh, start. They become like that, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's a very similar way how I got into playing music. I mean, I, I kind of played a little piano when I was young, but uh, picking up the guitar was really because I had four or five friends who I really, really liked, who I was really close with, and they all played. And I thought, well, I could do that too. And so I, I came to it late. Uh, did you Did you also come to it late as a virtue of that? or? Uh, well, I was a... Must have been around sixteen when I got into mm-hmm. it. So, I, how old were you? I was about eighteen when I first okay. seventeen, eighteen when I first picked it yeah. up. Yeah. So you think that's late? I think for like it seems that way for people who who try to make a go at this songwriting thing. It seems like they all start at nine, ten, twelve, 12 years old. Yeah. Twelve you know? for me. Wow. Yeah. So I, thought, I feel like I it's late. Sixteen was early. I guess. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> I was old. A lot of the people I've toured with, it, generally, it's it's. Early teens, if not younger, that they mm. began playing music. Yeah. 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 So I would agree with Travis that 16 yeah, yeah. is a bit towards the <laughs> late end of the spectrum. Over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, as a result, I didn't find, uh, I didn't write my first acceptable song until I was in my 20s. So I don't know, like, yeah. with you, if it was the same thing, it took a long time to sort of build those skills just to play the guitar and then to write. Yeah. I don't know. Like, did you find it was, were you writing? right away or did you was it a similar thing where you developed the skills first and then you started to to write 
Well, I, I became, I, I actually, when I started playing drums, I, be, I took it very seriously. I, des, I decided to become a drummer. And mm-hmm. so I was, I was debating going to university to study jazz drums mm. up to the age of, you know, like 19. And then something happened. There was a shift. I don't even know why that happened, but I just got the writing bug, the songwriting huh. bug. And, um, so you picked up the, that's it off the old guitar. That's right. Mm-hmm. I did that too. Cause I was, you know, I was always tinkering with the guitar on the side, mm-hmm. but, uh, never felt natural, uh, on the guitar until I started to, uh, start singing with the, strumming the guitar. And then that's when it, something clicked mm-hmm. and, and I was like, Oh, this is great. I, I had my love of literature and I, could, I had my love of music and it just seemed like the perfect combination to bring those two together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I didn't, uh, I, di- I didn't really, um, start, uh, r- I mean, it took me a while to figure out how to write songs when I, when I initially picked up the guitar to write music, um, the songs were just strange, uh, you know, long six, seven, uh, seven minute proggy mm. songs. Um, they just didn't make sense. I didn't, I didn't know that what, what what it required to write a song. I didn't know about structure, any of yeah. that stuff. So I had how to long learn did all it, that. How long did that take? That took, I would say, when I, when I discovered that there are rules and there's, there's ways to write songs, I really threw myself in it. And I, I feel like it took me maybe a year to really, like I was reading all these books and taking notes. You know? <laughs> I, I really uh, approached it like a, uh, like an academic, academic yeah, yeah, for sure. Because it made sense when I right. when I could visually see it, so I would say a year maybe to yeah. finally get to get my head around structure and all that stuff. And this and was then, while you were in university. Yeah. What was it that you studied? English. I studied. English. Yeah. Me too. There you go. Nice. <laughs> yeah. In funny. London, or Tr- uh, Guelph. Guelph. Yes. Ah. Okay. So yes, I was. I in like Guelph. Guelph. Guelph's a good music town. Guelph is a great town. Yes. Yeah. It. Uh, it actually, I feel it was a perfect place for uh, trying out. Um, it was a perfect place for, for making mistakes, for mm. for uh, trying to learn how to be a songwriter and a performer, and do it in front of people. There was a lot of small cafes and bars you can just perform and yeah. uh, learn the craft. And there was a lot of good songwriters, so there was always people that you sort of went and watched and learned from. It was mm-hmm. great. Uh, it was so really you absorbed a lot of that from. Fellow songwriters, people around you, did you learn for sure? Yeah, mm-hmm. there was uh, the Royal City was playing at the time, uh, more established folkies like uh, Stephen Fearing and Lewis Melville, who's playing with the Rio Statics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the sky, there's Guelph has an interesting connection with a lot of Toronto songwriters like the Sky Diggers and the Rio Statics, mm-hmm. they have a lot of connections in that city, Cowboy Junkies. Mm-hmm. So they, there were always all these people in the scene. Mm-hmm. So it was great. Yeah, I Did you a lot. Do you find that then, because uh, I've heard this about Guelph, it's similar to Windsor in that it almost has its own regional style of songwriting. Do you find that at all? Or did you find that you were all being influenced by different things? Well, there was, that's, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can answer that one. That's a good question. Because you have the folky scene and it's, it's very strong there. Uh, like Tamrak and Stephen Fearing and um, uh, what's what's the band that Stephen Fearing is now in? Um, I don't know. 
anyways, there's that really strong folky scene there. And then there was the indie scene as well, which is very different from the folk scene mm-hmm. uh, with bands like Royal City and Jim Guthrie, and which is still Constantine's and all those guys as well. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, and then there's also the, the jazz scene, which is like the free jazz scene in Guelph. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's a lot of different elements in that city, um, so that I don't know if I I can answer. No, that. that's that's perfect. I mean, I, I've just been told that about about Guelph that it has a very strong sort of regional sense of itself. Yeah, I think it was probably Derek that told me that. Or, oh, I don't know. But I kind of feel like every city says that about itself. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> but but Guelph does have a very like it's a very artsy town. So I feel yeah, like and there's a lot strong... of places to play. The music yeah. community is yeah present. I just don't know it well enough to make any judgments about. But that's always going to happen where you're always influenced by the people around you. Like if you're working and if you, you know, have respect for the people in your scene, you're going to be influenced by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you fe- did you feel that that was a primer for when you came and started playing in Toronto? Um, what kind of benefit did that have? Well, I think that's, um, you know, when I first put up my first album, uh, the community was very supportive. And that, that was great for uh, your self-confidence. And I in, think Guelph? That's, in Guelph? In Guelph, What yeah. year was that? It was in 2001, I think, around then, 2001 or two. And to have that as a first, um, as, as a, you know, up-and-coming songwriter, young songwriter... That that's a great boost to your ego, and I mm. think I don't know if I would have had that in Toronto, because the scene's so much more spread out. Mm. So it was great for me to have that in Toronto, in Guelph, and so when I did make the move to Toronto, I felt I felt a little bit more secure in my own, my sense of identity as a songwriter. So it was it was great to have to to be able to form that confidence in mm-hmm. Guelph. Yeah. So. Uh, you mentioned that you've you you think you finally created the album that you've been trying to create for twenty years, yeah. and and you're having this sort of dry spell almost to try and figure out what you're going to do next. Do you have any any ideas uh, in terms of what you would like to do? Is there a, like a genre you'd like to experiment with, or anything like that, or are you just sort of feeling it out and seeing what happens? Um, I've um, I've had no I've had, I've had many interests. Uh, different uh, areas of music that I've always wanted to explore. Um, for example, soundtracks is uh, something from movies is something that I've always wanted to um, investigate. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm working on a soundtrack uh, for a film. Hmm. And um, and it's it really opens up the possibilities of what you can do with sounds and taking out the vocals um, really frees you up because I find actually as a songwriter what locks you into your sound is your style of singing and so mm. when you take that away I feel that um, it seems to loosen the, the sound much more mm-hmm. and it's great I'm really enjoying it I feel like if that's probably one of the things that's helping me um, get excited again about music yeah, yeah. it's nice it's a different medium so very much yeah. so yeah and you're working I'm working with uh, a lot of Software, so working on designing sounds, mm. uh, so it's not just uh, working with melodies. It's more about textural sounds, um, which is great. I, I do love hmm. sounds. I do much. feel like there is a big textural element to your music. It's it's moody in its yeah. way, and it's got mm. 
gravitas. It's easy to it's it's easy to like put, go somewhere when you're listening when for me when I'm listening to your music because it's got this it creates a kind I feel like it does create a space mm-hmm. which oh, I'm glad to hear which that. I really like I wanted to ask you about I've, I mean reading about you you've been reading about the me. term yeah he <laughs> <laughs> does his research the term uh, <laughs> slow core comes up a lot right yes um, why don't you tell us about that. You know, slowcore is an interesting term because it, it I feel like it was sort of being used in the heydays of indie rock when indie rock, even the term indie rock started being used. Um, then there was these subgenres of indie rock because nobody really even knew what indie rock was. I mean, no. still now, it's such mm-hmm. a broad term. But back then, I, I think slowcore came to be used a lot for bands that used... Um, <clears throat> Their songs were usually written in slow to mid-tempo um, tempos <laughs> and uh, sort of, you know, introspective, um, a little bit melancholic and a little bit dreamy, those sort of things, yeah. dark mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, bands like um, Smog, I would say, maybe embody that sound a little bit, early Smog. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of other bands as well, as well. Uh, but I don't even know if did people still use that term slowcore. I hadn't heard it yeah, ever I, before. Oh, you haven't? Okay, <laughs> no, yeah, until was, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I think it's one of those terms that it came and now it's sort of I don't even know if people use it anymore. You know yeah. how you can go like get you know go on a wiki wormhole. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I did that once. I didn't. I guess I didn't. Wasn't exposed to slowcore at the time. But there was so many. It's like you're saying that early indie rock. Like things were just fractured into a million little pieces that were all different genres, and there was only two or three bands in each genre, and like That's right. it just became like how everybody's trying to invent a new genre. Yeah. Kind of is what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Just reading about it after the fact. Yeah, yeah. Along Did, with slowcore, there was like sadcore and dreamcore. And <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. So, did you set out to fulfill that label, or did you that label come after your sound was kind of? Uh, no, no, not to be honest. No, I was, uh, I was kind of intrigued by some of the artists that uh, were in that, uh, genre. I, I was curious and I listened to them. Um, but, uh, I feel like what I was trying to do didn't quite fit with what they were no. trying to do, even though there was, there were a lot of similarities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think I, I have such a deep love of, um, uh, literary um style of songwriting like going back to dylan and leonard cohen and, and other wordy wordsmith like mm-hmm. steve Earle and mm-hmm. springsteen and i find that those elements are not in bands that i was finding under the slow core right genre. and it was much more about um uh the music and less about the words. So you've almost combined, in a way, the folk way of writing, folk or singer-songwriter way of writing lyrics with that yes, sort exactly. of slowcore sound. Yeah, and I guess if I have to say, if there, there's one element of folk that would make me folky is the, the attention I pay to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would that's what maybe would make me a folky. I know Derek and I are both very similar that way. And, you know, we... I think for for me anyway, I know that I'm limited in a lot of ways, and so lyric writing is the one place that I can push myself and and yeah, um, yeah. And really explore that. So, 
it's where I try to excel in. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I'm not gonna, I'm not going to excel at guitar playing or singing, so I better do something well, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. If if you have a, a background in literature or if you love mm-hmm. books, it mm-hmm. just you just naturally want to push that part of yourself as a songwriter for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And it's great because I mean it's it's a great way to make your stamp as well to go back to this whole obsession with marking your stamp mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel like i'm a dog i need to like pee on a spot to mark my it's like spot. a legacy thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, I know, it's terrible the more i hear myself say it but yeah i mean it is a good way because uh, you're you can really distinguish yourself distinguish yourself through your way of um seeing the world mm-hmm. and not just through the music yeah, if you look at someone that I, I bring up a lot, Josh Ritter, he's one of my favorite songwriters. Yeah. He's he's not really doing anything special in terms of the melodies he's writing or the guitar he's playing, but uh, you know, there's there's very few people that I think can write a better song lyrically speaking. So right, right. yeah, there there's definitely a way to sort of push, and, and maybe it's not a, a way that succeeds in the mainstream. I don't know, but or at least it doesn't seem to anymore. Mm-hmm. But but uh, it's it's good to know there are still people yeah doing that. Yeah. How do you approach lyric writing? Does the music come first? The lyrics come? Yeah, you know it does. Um, I, I've tried experimenting with writing music first and then putting it to um, no, sorry, writing the lyrics and then putting it to music. And uh, it's really difficult to I find anyways to come up with a melody that I'm satisfied with. Mm. I find that to be very difficult. I find in my mind I've developed this notion that you have to be a true craftsman to be able to come up with a really great melody after you've written your lyrics. Mm. Mm-hmm. If people like Paul McCartney do that, does that. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, uh, uh, normally I tend to find the melody I like, and then once I've committed to it, um, uh, I'll write the lyrics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is most how most people write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've tried to do the, the lyric writing thing. I think I've succeeded at it maybe once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's it's hard. For sure, because you always think like when you're sitting with a notepad and you get an idea to write, write some lyrics. It's like, oh, this is gonna go great when I get home and put it to <laughs> something, and then you can never think of something that fits it. So yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously, melody construction is is really big for you too. Then yeah. Um, so, do you find that, like, when you go back to write the lyrics, do you find when you're when you're constructing that melody? I mean, do you find that you're sort of almost mouthing words that kind of fit? And then you base the lyrics on that, or yeah, very much so. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically singing not nonsensical, nonsensical stuff, gibberish. Yeah. And what is the act of translating gibberish into a real, consistent like set of lyrics? How how does that happen? A lot of trial and error, so a yeah. lot of sitting around and experimenting with. Um, usually, uh, it involves. The way I do it is I'll I'll go and sit down and I'll just try to write stream of conscious um, lyrics, and then um, once I have a set of lines, I'll try them out hmm. until certain words kind of fit the length of the phrase, and eventually I think start, things start to shape itself. Um, maybe okay. a line here, a line there. And once you have those lines, I think that's when you start to get a sense of where you want to go. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier once you have those guiding posts. Mm. Um, Some key phrases. Yeah, exactly. Then you can start to actually 
then you can go away and write more of a um, uh, what do you say how do I say it not a storyline but places that you can go possibly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, but it, it it always comes down to for me singing it and seeing how 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 true it sounds mm-hmm. once you're singing it because many times I've written lyrics which sound great they seem great on on the paper but once you sing it it just doesn't seem to work and mm-hmm. so for me it has to work once it's it has to work yeah. uh, through the act of singing mm-hmm. they have to the words have to fold over each other in a, in a certain way that fits the song very much so yeah. yeah I find the reverse is the case sometimes for me where it, they sound great like it sounds like a good in the song and but when i write them out and i read them and i'm like i don't want everybody, anybody to ever read <laughs> right. this yes out of context because mm-hmm. yes. it's not a good poem yeah but yeah. it's a good song which i don't yeah. know how that that disconnect between poetry and songwriting is something i'm really interested in because it's hard to hard to define it's very true you're right yeah yeah mm-hmm. as someone who's focused on a songwriter who's focused on the lyrics is it how frustrating is it to play in a room where the lyrics aren't being paid attention to? Where it's just not, where you can tell it's just not important to the audience. It's difficult, very much so, yeah. I mean, that's why I choose not to perform very often. Because uh-huh. most of the times I'm playing in those those sort of environments. So it's, uh, <clears throat> I take it, uh, I don't want to say it, I take it personally, but I it's, it sort of hurts. So yeah. I, I, I've put myself through those sort of situations enough time to not want to put myself through it anymore. Right. Hence, I, I don't perform live very often other than go, go on tours in Europe. And mm-hmm. I do that more because it's just nice to go to Europe. It's nice. Right. <laughs> how, do you, how do you... Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, there are places in Europe, too, where you play um, that you get the same treatment. Mm. But you justify it because you're in Europe. You're in Europe. And it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> There's added sound And you're getting, bonuses. you know, the treatment, the European hospitality exactly. as well from yeah. musicians. Very much uh, so. so how do you decide in that regard, How what makes you decide on a show outside of Europe? Like if you were to play in Toronto, um, is it just rarity alone that matters? or Rarity? To decide when it's worth it to put on a show here, say somewhere in Ontario. Or, right. Yeah. Well, I pick and choose now where to where to play. Like uh, when I played in Toronto last time for my release show, I played in a church, and mm. it was great. It was a wonderful setting, and there are certain environments that you just people uh, are much more respectful just because of the environment. So yes. it was it was a very gratifying show. Um, so uh, I usually just make sure that when I'm going to do a show, it's at a venue that I know it's appropriate for the music that okay. I'm going to do. Right. Yeah, because yeah. playing in bars is just not... Yeah, <laughs> it just exactly. doesn't. It's not conducive to that. Just even... It's not even necessarily that people aren't interested. I think um, a lot of people might be, but the whole atmosphere of a bar, it's very loud. Yeah. Sound system's usually not very good, and so you can't hear the lyrics right. even if you wanted to. And it, so yeah. people just end up, you know, socializing and drinking, which is what you yeah. do there anyway. It makes so. it even challenging for the people who are there to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I can't actually hear what he's saying. So, yeah. So how often do you do Europe? I'm trying to do now regularly once a year, once a year. Yeah. And you got one coming up. So I got one coming up this year. Yeah. In May, um, just in Italy. Oh really? Yeah. I just decided to 
focus go, yeah go and go and explore italy and get to know it how many shows uh 20 21 22 wow. all so. in one country wow. yeah it's pretty unusual i have to say because most bands when they travel they try to hit the big cities in mm. most countries and it makes sense you know that's how you want to tour but um i did that for my last tour and i covered nine countries in two months and it was it was great but <coughs> but you don't really get to as you only get a good sense of the countries that mm. you're going through you know like eight countries in two months is crazy when you think mm-hmm. about it like right each one like with its own win. culture and, yeah, yeah very much so yeah and if your goal is beyond simply just the gigs like you're saying that you part of it is just that love you love to go to europe yeah um i can see why getting to know a place is a perk on its own very and much you so. can't do that if you're getting in a van for half of every day you know? totally yeah I think the reason people don't do that is because um, you don't make a lot of money in this type of tour that I'm doing because you're playing a lot of smaller clubs, smaller um, venues, and so bands want to play bigger shows so that they can recoup the tour costs. Right. Um, But when, so I'm going with a small group of people. That's why the expenses are pretty low. How many? Two other people. Two other people? What do you usually tour with? Five. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listening to your music doesn't sound like there's that much. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was picturing a four-piece band. I mean, I wasn't deconstructing it enough to be like, oh, there must be a person playing this and this and this. Yeah. But uh, is is your show, does it sound like the records? Um, I try to do a little bit more, upbeat, not upbeat, but uh, livelier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I try to find a balance between that because I've, I've learned that... <clears throat> When you play live shows, it's it's just nice to be able to balance the quiet songs with more energy, energetic songs. Mm-hmm. So bringing a band and a group of musicians really helps to provide that dynamic. Right. Mm-hmm. It makes for, I think, more interesting shows for yourself and for the audience. Mm-hmm. So I like that. I like having that. Yeah. Yeah. Until yeah. recently, my main challenge with that was that I didn't have any lively songs. <laughs> yeah, <right>? me too. <laughs> My music was too morose. And then some of it's not dark, but it's slow. Right. And I've re- like I've set out to change that. And I think in the last year or two, it's kind of happened finally. So how, how are you changing it? Just by developing the skills to be able to write more <clears throat> lively material. Right. In the mm-hmm. first place. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I mean, there would have been a shyness factor as well. I find playing slow um, easier. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you're putting more of yourself out there if you're trying to be energetic and loud. And, you know. And if you're naturally a quiet person. I'm a naturally shy yeah. person. So. Right. Yeah. It was difficult to get over that, but it's an important skill to have. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's great. That I think that's, I mean, that's what, I, what I've learned over this period of time is to just to be able to balance the songs. I think mm-hmm. that's really important because I was writing a lot of very similar sounding songs and mm-hmm. so when i was performing live i, I realized like after the fifth song uh, it starts to sound the same you know you do want to throw something in there to yeah. break up that um i guess monotony would be a term <laughs> i would use yeah well that's one of the advantages of having a band behind you as well is that uh, they're each going to bring their own personalities to it as well yeah like i've noticed since uh since diane motel uh, my band is, is has been playing that it makes it pushes me to to do different things because each one of these people have their own approach to it, and 
And so it's maybe easier to push yourself to be more energetic when you've got four people behind you that are want to be energetic. <laughs> yeah. And do you find that as well? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. So what's the lineup for Italy? There's two other people. So it's uh, a female singer who plays keys with me. Her name is uh, Diana Planche. She uh, played in a band called uh, uh, The Paint Movement. I, I don't know mm. if you guys know. Toronto mm. Band. Uh, good band. And a guitar player uh, named Evan Abiel, who plays um, in uh, Memory House, who's another a goth band, actually. Hmm. Yeah. But That's an interesting collection. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've known both of them for a long time. Great yeah. musicians. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be good. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. And you leave, you, when do you leave for that? You said May? Yeah, yeah. The end of April. We go for yeah. a month. Yeah. Hmm. I'm still deciding to whether or not I'm going to stick around and just travel a little bit afterwards, afterwards. yeah when yeah. you're there it's so easy to just mm-hmm. hop on a train to or... stay <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's uh we'll see where it goes i'm i'm uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I've been, I'm committed to this lifestyle so i i think that it's turned it's too late to turn back so no no thoughts of quitting after this album or no limited I, thoughts i think that i've i've uh i've had too much too i've wrestled with that for too long to give into it now Mm. I think I'm if I was not going to go Kathleen Edwards on us and open a coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wonder if she, I, I do think about it. I, I thought it was really interesting when I read that or I heard that. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing that she would not be able to, that she would not come back. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd have to agree with you about that. Yeah. I well, she even acknowledged that it, it's, she's open to it at some yeah. point. So it seems like it'll happen. <laughs> Yeah, I think like when you have the luxury of stopping and opening on a coffee shop, you probably could do, you will do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who don't have that luxury mm-hmm. continue to you do quit it. for different reasons, for mm-hmm. more pragmatic reasons or financial reasons. They're probably up for good. Whereas, yeah. You
empty rooms whisper your names and the blank page it hides from shame all the while you That was Barzin playing all the while from his new record, To Live Alone in That Long Summer. That was the first time that we had a guest play a song just that wasn't completely acoustic because we were, we were down in Barzin's uh, writing studio. And he already had his PA set up and he's just like, oh, why don't we run it through the PA? And so I mic'd it up and it sounded good. We ran with it. And I think, I mean, his music alone, like it, it's, it's, uh, the songwriting itself is already like so dreamy. It's so... I just, I find it, you know, almost puts me in a trance. I get, I can just kind of flow with it. And to have that reverb, that old Fender tube amp, uh, just, it suited it so well that I, you know, I think it sounds fantastic. Uh, It's funny, that night after we interviewed him, I ended up going, it was my roommate's birthday, and we ended up going to this little bar near near our place, uh, where uh, certain Emily Copeland works, and she she's a Windsorite and a very much involved in the arts community. And I know she's done some radio shows and stuff. And after bumping into her there, I just uh, I wanted to know what she was working on here in Toronto. So I looked up, I I, I found her website, and uh, it turns out she's running this promotional company, this one woman promotional company, and. I went to the list of clients to see if I recognized anybody, and the first name on the list was Barzin. And I wish I knew that before going in there, so I could have been like, hey, guess who I was just with, you know, by some strange coincidence. And it's the serendipity that all those Windsor connections just keep coming back to haunt me. <laughs> uh, check out Barzin at barzinh.com. If you want to get a hold of Travis and I, you can write to us at iqmjpod.com at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash iqmjpod or on twitter at iqmjpod to listen to every episode of the podcast you can visit us online at www.iqmjpod.com or subscribe to i quit my job on itunes our next guest is going to be our first windsor local an old friend of both travis and i david dubois from the locust have no king look them up they're fantastic we'll see you in two weeks I quit my job. I quit my job. I quit my job. I'm free today.